All right, Matthew 27, I want to preach to you this morning about Judas. Judas is probably not one of my favorite characters in the Bible to preach about, but he is a very, very interesting character. So let's look at Judas chapter 27 and look in verse 1. The Bible says, When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented, them, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. So this morning I want to try and bring to you a message about a fellow that came very close, very close to salvation's door and missed it, missed it. Lord, help us, God, this morning we pray. God, I pray, Lord, as the gospel goes out, Lord, that, God, anyone that might be listening to this now or in the future, God, I pray that you deal with their hearts, God, about being saved, having come so close, Lord, to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and just, just missing it, God, Lord. and. Almost is but lost, the old song says, God. And, Lord, I pray that you'd help, Lord, nobody in this place or anybody under the sound of my voice. I pray that that wouldn't have to be said, God, that they almost made it, but, God, they missed it just the same. And, Lord, I pray, God, help us, Lord, help us this morning. God, we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Judas is a most peculiar case, of, uh, case study of a man who right, walked right up to salvation's door but never made it in. I don't know of a fellow who ever came so close to salvation, who ever came so close to the Lord as Judas did and still didn't make it. I've known a lot of folks to sit on the church pew and never get saved. I've known, I've known folks of hearing a gospel message and never getting saved. But Judas was a fellow that was really, he was considered the best of the best. He was considered the spiritual elite. When the Lord Jesus started handing out power to heal and work miracles and signs and wonders, Judas was one of them that got it. He was right in there among the rest of them. And a frightening thought that people, there's a, it's a frightening thought that people across America have embraced a form of religion of their own preference or maybe the preference of their mama and daddy. I've just been raised in it. And so they've come to church over and over again and I, you know, to be honest with you, I can't help wonder how many folks like that are in here this morning. You just don't know. You say, well, Brother Nathan, I've been saved. Well, I have to take you at your word. And I do, I do. But I think you know. If you're sitting in here this morning and you're not saved, I think you know. If you're listening at home this morning or wherever you might be, I think you know. I think you know whether or not you're saved. You've come so close. And yet you've missed the mark just the same. The Bible says in the book of Job chapter 27, the rich man shall lie down, but he shall not be gathered. He opens his eyes and he is not. The only thing that's more tragic than a man dying and going to hell is a man that dies and goes to hell off of the church pew. It's bad. Listen, it's bad if a man dies in his sins and burns for eternity. It's bad. But it's worse when a man's been warned his entire life or when a woman's been warned her entire life her child's been warned of their whole life and dies and goes to hell the same way. In Luke chapter 16, there's a, Christ tells the story, and it's not an untrue story. He never says that it's a parable, and he gives specifics. He gives names. In Luke chapter 16, there's a story of a rich man, and the Bible says he's clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. 
And then not too far away, geographically speaking, not too far away from that same rich man, there was a poor man by the name of Lazarus. And these two people are just about in the same place. They're not separated by scores of, mile, uh, scores of miles. There's only a couple of things that's separating them. One's the rich man's gate. That's it. Another thing that's separating them is the clothes that they're wearing. The rich man's got purple, which is a sign of royalty. It's a sign of wealth and rich, richness. Well, the rich man's got all that stuff on, and here's an old beggar named Lazarus, and he's clothed in, clothed in rags. Rich man sits in his house, and he's got health. And, rich, and Lazarus is sitting outside, and he's got sores all over him. The rich man is sitting inside, and there's no dogs in his house. Dogs in the Bible, whether you believe it or not, they're a sign of uncleanness. It's a, you, don't, you don't bring dogs in your house in the, old, in the Bible times like we do now. But nonetheless, here's a rich man sitting in his house. No dogs inside, and yet the Bible says that the dogs came and licked the sores that were on Lazarus's body. Other than that, there's not much separating them. Lazarus is not sitting down in the Congo of Africa. He's not sitting in some place where they've never heard the gospel. He's not sitting in some poor place. He's just sitting right outside Lazarus's door, or he's just sitting outside of the rich man's door, rather, and all he's doing is begging for the crumbs that falls from the rich man's table. And yet, because they're so, yet even though they're so close geographically, when they die, they land in two totally different places. The rich man, the Bible says, he died, was buried, and lifted up his eyes in hell. And the Bible said that when Lazarus died, when Lazarus died, the angels carried him into Abraham's bosom, not separated by much, but they land in two different places. And so there's folks sitting in churches all across America this morning. There's people sitting in this church potentially this morning, folks that are listening to the sound of my voice, that you're very close, man. You're very close. You're very close to somebody else that has trusted Jesus Christ, and yet you never have. Trust in something, but you're not trusting Christ. The Bible said at, at the second advent, which we're not talking about that this morning, but he said two's going to be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. It will be the same way at the rapture. Two people sitting on the church pew, one's taken, the other left. In Acts chapter 26, Paul stands before the governor Festus, and he stands before King Agrippa, and he gives an account of his own life. Paul has given an account of his own life before his conversion. And then he gives an account of his conversion. And then he gives an account of his life after conversion. And near the end of the chapter, Festus, who came into Felix's seat, he stands up and he looks at Paul and he says, Paul, to paraphrase, he says, Paul, you're nuts. Just like a politician looking at a preacher. He says, Paul, you're crazy. He said, to quote the scripture, he said, Paul, much learning doth make thee mad. And Paul said, he said, I'm not crazy. He said, I speak forth the words of truth and soberness. And Paul turned around and he, he turned over and he looked at King Agrippa and he said, he said, I perceive that this was not done in a corner, talking about all this stuff that had to do with Jesus Christ and the apostles. He said, I perceive that none of this was done in, the, in a corner. And he looked at King Agrippa. King Agrippa, by the way, according to history, nothing in the scripture that I can find that proves this, but King, King Agrippa was the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who was the king that tried to put Jesus Christ to death in Matthew chapter 2 as a baby. If that's true, that's kind of an interesting thing. Here's a man that tried to kill Jesus Christ in his infancy. He dies. 
His son's put on the throne and it comes down. You come down to Acts chapter 26 and here lands King Agrippa, who is the great grandson. And Paul looks at King Agrippa and he says, Believest thou the prophets? What prophets? He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And before Agrippa can even answer, he says, I know that thou believest. Paul's standing there looking at King Agrippa and he knows full well who's who's sitting on a seat of power in front of him. He knows full well that that fellow sitting there hearing him out and listening to his case is a fellow that is not hiding from what's going on among the Jews. He's not hiding from the fact that there was this man named Jesus who showed up and claimed to be the king of the Jews and yet was crucified. King Agrippa's not ignorant of that stuff. And Paul also knows, he also knows that King Agrippa is a student of, old, of, of the Old Testament. And he says, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know you believe. A lot of folks sitting in church, I could look at you this morning you say you, and say, you believe the Bible? I know you believe. I know you believe. That's the situation of many professing Christians all across churches in America, everywhere, possibly in this church, possibly under the sound of my voice. They sit as close to a gospel witness as, was, as Agrippa was to Paul, but they never quite make it. You say, what's the matter? They don't believe the Bible? No, they believe the Bible. You say, what's the matter? They don't fear God? No, they fear the Lord. The Bible said in the Old Testament that the children of Israel feared the Lord and served their own gods. The Bible says in the book of James that the devils believe and tremble. They're afraid, but they're not believers. Do they, do they not know how to be saved? No, they know how to be saved. You say, what's the matter? They've just never turned to Jesus Christ. Turned to something perhaps, but they've never turned to Jesus Christ. And in the text here in Matthew chapter 27, Judas has discovered the state of his own condemnation. The Bible says in verse 3, Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, Judas understood full well that he was condemned. He understood it. But what you're, about, get, what you're getting ready to witness here in Matthew chapter 27 is a man who's religious, who's moral, who is seemingly righteous, and he's trying to make amends for some bad deed that he's done. He's trying to make amends for that bad deed that he's done of betraying Jesus Christ with some good deeds. Some of you listening to my voice right now, very possibly, very possibly, your idea of salvation is God taking your old life and patching it up. That's not salvation. The Bible says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe it's verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's not a repaired creature. He's not a renewed creature. The Bible said that he is a new creature. You say, what does God do at salvation? God takes the entirety of your old life and he throws it right in the trash can and he starts entirely over. He doesn't. He doesn't have to remake it per se. You say, well, what about Romans chapter 12, verse 2? I understand. I understand those verses. But what God does is he lays a new foundation. He takes that old house and he tears it all the way to the foundation, brings in a jackhammer and splits the foundation and hauls all that concrete out and then he lays a new foundation. You say, who is that? Jesus Christ. And then he rebuilds a new life on top of, on top of Jesus Christ. You think that God takes your, own life, your old life and remakes it and renovates it and puts it right back where it was, but that's not salvation. Salvation's an entirely new life. Let me just point out a couple of things about Judas this morning. First of all, let me say that Judas's problem is that he would not humble himself before Jesus Christ. The Bible says in verse 3, Then Judas, 
which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. You see who he brought it to? He brought it to the chief priests and elders. He's willing to humble himself. That's a pretty humbling thing. It's a pretty humbling thing to step before somebody that you consider to be the spiritual elite and humble yourself and say, man, I really did wrong in doing this thing. Listen, it'd be very, very humbling to step into a confessional booth with a Roman Catholic priest and say, hey, I did this. It'd be a pretty humbling thing to do. And you know, there's a lot of people that are sitting around the world this morning that think because they've done that, they've got forgiveness of sins from Jesus Christ. Some of you folks sitting in here this morning, you think that when you have problems, you can go to a Baptist preacher somewhere and try and get quote-unquote counsel, and you think because of that, you've gotten forgiveness of sins. Judas, here stands Judas bringing his money back to the chief priest. Let me ask you something. Why didn't Judas go back and find Jesus Christ and take it to him and apologize? Why didn't Judas grab that silver and go to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I'm sorry? I'm sorry. You say, well, he couldn't have got in there where Jesus Christ was. Really? Peter did. Peter went right in there to the palace of the high priest. John did. The Bible says that John was known by name unto the high priest. John and Peter did. Why didn't Judas? I'll tell you why. He willing to be humbled, but not willing to be humbled before Jesus Christ. Judas had gotten to the place to where he'd felt some shame and sorrow for what he did, but his shame and sorrow never pushed him to the place to where he realized, I've offended God. Hey, I've, I've done wrong against my preacher. I've done wrong against whoever else. I've done wrong against my family. I've done wrong against my church. But yeah, but what about God? What about God? You've offended God. David, in that great psalm where he is asking for forgiveness, he's repenting of the sin that he committed with Bathsheba, that great sin of adultery. He said in Psalm 51, verse 4, he said, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this great evil in thy sight. Many people proceed off of a false assurance of salvation because they can willingly admit to somebody else that's flesh just like they are and say, Boy, I didn't do right about that particular thing. Yeah, but what about your nature? Judas was willing to admit that he did wrong, that he did wrong in selling Jesus out for these, this 30 pieces of silver, but it never drove him to the place to where he recognized that there was something wrong on the inside, like a lot of Christians. You'll come in here and you'll put up, uh, I say a lot of Christians, a lot of folks that are professing to be Christians, you'll come into church and you'll put up with some preacher putting his finger in your face and saying, you're wrong about this and you're wrong about that. But the moment that the Spirit of God takes those faults and puts them before your face and says, you're that way because there's something wrong with your nature. There's something wrong with your heart. There's something wrong with the way that you think. There's something wrong with you. The moment that the Spirit of God does that, you start getting very uncomfortable and saying, no, I think you have the wrong idea about me. No, the Lord doesn't have the wrong idea about you. God knows you. God made you. God was there. God was watching. When Adam took of that fruit off the tree, Eve gave it to her husband. He took of that fruit, plunged the entire race of man into sin. God knows why you're doing the things. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, and I believe it's chapter 5, and speaking about a harlot, a man's conduct with a harlot, he says God ponders the path of men. God wonders 
He looks at it and he thinks about it. And he says, why is it that they do that stuff? God knows. God knows. But he looks at it and he considers it, the Bible says. Do you? Have you ever? So while people are standing back looking at the circumstances and saying, well, man, I really understand that I did this wrong, they never get to the place to where they realize I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner in God's sight. You say, but I don't really feel like I'm a sinner. We're not asking you if you feel like you're a sinner in your sight. How, how does God see the matter? How does God see you? Listen, one of the attitudes, one of the, one of the marks of a man that's humbled himself before God is that he takes the attitude, God's justified in charging me as a sinner. God's justified in sending me a man to tell me that I'm a sinner. He's right. That verse in Psalm 51, verse 4, he says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this great evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. David said, Listen, he said, God is right. He said, God is right for charging me the way that he has. God's right. God's right. And listen, let me tell you something this morning. If you're in constant disagreement with a preacher when he's standing in front of you and telling you that you're a sinner, there's something wrong with your attitude. You know, I've never, I've never been in a church, I've never been in a service to where a preacher has stood up and told me myself, after I've been saved, I've never been in a service where a preacher stood up and told me, you're a sinner, and been offended at that. You say, why? Because I've already admitted it. I understand that, and I agree with him. I'm a sinner. I'm saved, but I'm a sinner. And so a preacher stands up and says, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, or preaches something and God takes that and reveals to you, you're a sinner, and you get upset about it, something's, something's awry. You say, are you saying I'm not saved? I'm saying that there's a possibility. I'm asking you to consider that this morning. Listen, it's not going to cut it. Listen, it's not going to cut it by you sitting down somewhere and saying, well, I really messed that up. Lord, if you'll help me, I'll do better. That's not salvation. That is not salvation. I don't know who told you that. I don't know why you think that. That's not salvation. You say, what is salvation? Salvation is recognizing that you're undone. You're without hope, without God. And that if Jesus Christ, if God doesn't save you through the merits of Jesus Christ, you're going to die and burn for eternity. But God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And if you'll put your faith and trust in what Christ did for you at Calvary to justify you in the sight of God, you can be saved. That's it. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's not by cleaning up. It's not by cleaning up. You say, what's going on? I believe with all my heart that professing Christians are not Christians at all. Professing saved folks are not saved at all. What they've done is they've turned to something other than Jesus Christ, turned to good works, but not turned to Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Listen, if you can save yourself by your own good works, you use that as an excuse to glory in your own works, to glory in your own nature. You don't have anything to glory about. It's got to be entirely what Jesus Christ... What are you turning to this morning? What are, you, what are you humbling yourself before? Well, preacher, I can admit that I did this wrong, but can you admit that you're a sinner before God? You got the wrong idea about me, preacher. God knows. God knows. You realize that the testimony of Scripture about Job was that Job was a man 
who was upright and astute evil, one that feared God. You realize that? Might be your situation. You listening to the sound of my voice this morning? Might be your situation to where you fear God and eschew evil. You're an upright man as far as your outward works are concerned. And you know what? God unleashed the devil on Job and brought, and the devil brought Job sorrow after sorrow and heartache after heartache. And Job still could not yet see who he was before the Lord. And so here comes Job chapter 32, and the scripture says about Job that Job justified himself rather than God. You know what Job's attitude was? God, you don't have any right in doing any of this stuff to me. You don't have any right in bringing any of this stuff my way. Well, Job had had three friends to sit there and argue with him day in and day out. For all this period of time, he'd had three friends to sit there and argue with him about why they thought Job was wrong. And when they all got done, Job 32 shows up. And the Bible says that Job justified himself rather than God. And a man by the name of Elihu stepped up. He was the youngest out of all of them. And he said, hey, I've been sitting over here in the corner and I haven't said anything. He said, because I said, days should speak and years should tell of wisdom. He said, but you fellas have made me so mad. He said, I'm about ready to burst. He said, shut your mouth and let me talk for a second. And so for six chapters, Elihu preaches and tells Job, buddy, you're in bad shape. And he preaches and reads Job the riot act. You know what happens after that? God speaks. God starts talking. And you know what God's question, you know what God's, what God's question, one of God's questions to Job was, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? It'd be a good question to get you to consider who you are before the Lord. Where were you, big shot? Preacher, I think you've got the wrong idea about me. I'm really not all that bad. Really? Where were you when the Lord created all this stuff that you're taking advantage of? Here stands the creator of the universe. He's created everything that you take advantage of and enjoy. How much of it have you used for his honor and glory? When it's all over, when, when, when Job quits, when God quits talking, Job in Job chapter 42, he steps back and he says, I've heard of thee with the hearing of the ear, a lot like a lot of church folks. I've heard of thee with the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. And you know what his response to that was? He said, I've heard of you. Now I see you. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in sackcloth and ashes. When a man sees himself the way that God sees him, the attitude is not self-esteem. When a man sees himself the way that God sees him, he wants to dig a hole and bury himself. I believe the Bible says in the book of Job, he says, How shall man that is unclean be clean in the sight of God? And he goes on to say, it's either in Job or in Psalms, he says, he says, how can you be clean in the sight of, in, in the sight of someone in whose eyes the heavens are not clean? And so when you see yourself like God sees you, hey, when you see yourself like God sees you, you're not standing up on your two feet saying, God, I, I, I fully expect you to forgive me. You're down on your face with your face buried in the horse manure saying, oh God, oh God. Oh, God, have mercy on my soul. Do us well as Christians to get back there. You don't see yourself like God sees you, and so you, have a, you struggle to humble yourself before God. You need a new perspective. You need the right point of view. 
Judas's problem is that he's willing to humble himself before a lot of folks. He's willing to humble himself before the spiritual elite, but he's not willing to humble himself before Jesus Christ. Could I ask you this morning, are you willing to humble yourself before Jesus Christ? Have you? Have you? Have you? Let me say second of all that Judas wouldn't turn himself to Jesus Christ. Je- Judas, he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't humble himself before the Lord, but he wouldn't turn to the Lord. Judas fully understood that what he had done was wrong, and so he tried to go back and fix the individual issue. Here's what I got out of a, out of a wrong deal. I sold the Lord out, got my 30 pieces of silver, and instead of repenting for himself and repenting for his nature, he said, I did wrong in this one particular act. And it's almost like he isolated that act from the rest of his life. Judas had a problem throughout the whole of the rest of his life, but he couldn't see it. He couldn't see it. He couldn't see it. Couldn't realize that there was something wrong on the inside. Isaiah 29 verse 15 says, Woe to them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. And they say, Who seeth us? Who knoweth us? The Bible says in the book of uh, the book of Romans that there's coming a day of judgment to where God shall judge the secrets of men by my gospel Paul was speaking about. All that stuff that you've sought deep to hide from God and say, God doesn't know. Who knows us? Nobody's going to find that stuff out. God's going to bring all that stuff out in the open one day. All that stuff that Jeffrey Epstein done with all that trafficking, you say, what's going to happen? One day they're going to stand before God, and God's going to bring it all out. All of them secrets that have been buried over with millions and billions of dollars, God's going to bring it out. And listen, you sitting in here listening to me, listen, you under the sound of my voice this morning, I'm telling you what secrets you've hidden in the dark and what you proclaim that nobody knows, God knows. God knows. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. Men will take the things that they, that they themselves, men, men will look at their own lives and they recognize, well, this isn't right about me. The lost man I'm speaking of, take a look at him at his life and say, boy, I know that wasn't right. He says, I know that that was unclean. I know that that was unrighteous. And instead of coming to Jesus Christ, they'll try to hide those things up with the works of their own righteousness. That was the same thing that Adam and Eve did. They took of the fruit of a tree. You know what else grows on trees? Leaves. When they took of the fruit of that tree, they took it and turned around and made aprons to themselves out of leaves. And so the thing that you has, has troubled your conscience, the thing that's bothered you and said, boy, you're not right about that. There's something wrong on the inside. You need to turn to Jesus. You need to trust Jesus Christ. You're taking that same thing, those works, and you're saying, well, if I can just change them and make myself an apron. Maybe I can hide behind these things from the presence of God. And that's why when God comes walking around, that's why when God comes, when the conviction of the Holy Ghost comes and knocks at your heart's door, it's not peace. It's troublesome. It bothers you. It eats your lunch. Why? Why? You might be lost. You might be lost. Let me say lastly of all, none of what Judas did In this incident right here in Matthew 27, nothing of what Judas did brought him any comfort. Nothing brought him any peace of mind. Nothing soothed his troubled conscience. You know where Judas went to? He went went to a suicidal grave. What's going on in our churches why so many folks are committing suicide? Could it be that they're just not saved to begin with? When you get saved, man, God puts something in your heart to where 
the birds sing sweeter, the sunshine looks brighter, the grass looks greener, and all these people sitting in church that got horns on their head, man, it looks like they got halos. There's something wonderful about them. You say, why? Life is, it's endeared, man. It's just, it's glorious. And you'd want to take all that stuff away and commit suicide? Why? No peace of mind. With all that Judas did in trying to make amends without going to Jesus Christ, took him to the suicidal grave. Listen, some of you folks this morning, you've gone to a doctor and taken advantage of every pill that he could give you. Haven't you? Haven't you? You've taken advantage of every pill, Prozac and Xanax and all that stuff, and none of that stuff bring you any peace. You've tried every program that religion has to offer. You've come to church. You've become a member of a church. You've gotten involved in church attendance. You've teaching a Sunday school class or maybe have taught a Sunday school class in the past. You've been baptized. You've been memorizing Scripture, reading your Bible and praying, and yet you've got no peace in your heart. What's going on? You say, what's, you say what, what's the matter, preacher? You're trying to take those good works and trying to smooth over that troubled conscience, and it ain't going to work. That conscience is going to be troubled until you plunge it beneath the crimson flow of Jesus Christ. Behind it all, listen to me, behind it all, here stands Jesus Christ saying, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. You're working so hard, you're beating your brains out to try and get some peace, trying to get some rest. And listen, all you've got to do is turn to the one who got it all for you. He said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. That's all you've got to do. You know how easy it is to be saved this morning? It's as easy as taking a drink. Some of you folks, before you got saved, you was an old sock drunk. Nothing for you to pop a, pop a bottle cap off of a bottle of beer and just chug it down. Pretty easy, wasn't it? just as easy to get saved. Just as easy. It's just as easy to get saved. Hebrews chapter 9. Let me read you a passage of Scripture. It says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You know what's troubling your conscience this morning if you're in here and you're lost or if you're listening to me out on the Internet? You know what's wrong with your conscience if it's troubled dead works? You've got a lot of works that's troubling your conscience. You've got a lot of stuff that you've done that's troubling your conscience because it's dead works. Because the Bible says in the book of Ephesians, before you save, you're dead man. And so everything that you can produce is dead works. That includes your church attendance. That includes your Bible reading. That includes your prayers. It's dead works. It's dead works. It's dead works. And none of that stuff can give you any peace of mind. You say, what do I do? Turn to Jesus. Just come to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ to take you and put you in, put, wash you in his own blood. And the Bible says that that blood that be applied to your account, be applied to your soul, it purged that conscience from those dead works. Hey, Judas, you're going to sit here and you're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to listen to preaching sermon after sermon after sermon and go to hell right from the church pew, are you? No doubt in my mind, all you've got is religion. I hope that's not the case. Boy, it's not going to take you to heaven. Blood of Jesus Christ. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for this morning service, God, and I pray, Lord, that you deal with the hearts of men 
God, pray that you'd shake people up, God, and help them to realize, God, that their only hope of salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the death, burial, and resurrection. No sacraments, God. There's no, no bit of good works, no baby sprinkling, God. There's no baptism, no uh, Lord's Supper or anything like that, God, that can be done, Lord, to wash the sins of a man away. Everything that was needed to cleanse a man was done at Calvary 2,000 years ago by the spotless, holy, harmless Son of God. Lord, I pray, God, that you deal with hearts this morning. And God, Lord, speak as you see fit. Lord, we'll thank you for it. Lord, we trust in you to do the work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.